Well, this is our third week that we have been here in this book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, you might recall we read those words, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. And when you get to the last chapter, that blessing is pronounced once again to those who heed or obey uh, the message that's before you in this letter of Revelation. Let me say we're only in the third week. We're only in the first seven or eight verses, and I already have been greatly blessed as I've had the one to be the privileged one to study and uh, prepare the messages and, of course, to deliver them to you as well. But I really have been blessed by the Lord. But I've also sensed there is a heightened awareness uh, among people uh, who believe that we really are living uh, right on the edge of time, you know, the, the last days, so to speak. And uh, I sense that not just from Christian people that know the Bible, but even people who don't have anything at all to do with the Bible. They're greatly perplexed and troubled about what is going on right now, not just in our nation, but around the world. People are acutely aware that our world is right on the edge, if I might say, a major disaster. Daily, we are faced and have to struggle with terrorist attacks. You know, one of the reasons is because information now is instant. I mean, while it's happening around the world, we're made aware of it. And so there's more awareness. But we deal deal with terrorist attacks, uh, potential nuclear strikes, economic implosion, not just in the United States, but literally around the whole world, worldwide. And then there's the massive moral revolution that just has exploded. And I don't mean for the good, but for the worse. Um, The world has been turned upside down morally in a big way overnight. Our nation and our world's moral compass have been deliberately smashed, leaving us adrift on treacherous seas where we are facing and fighting the perfect storm. Believe me, it's there. These really are daily days. We're living in days when the masses, I say that, the masses, uh, having thrown off all restraints, are doing what is right in their own eyes, no matter who gets trampled and destroyed in their wake. And people everywhere are expressing very troubled hearts and wondering whether they're even going to have a future at all. That's kind of a picture of the world, if you please, uh, being painted there. And I'm sure that you as well are aware of this. And what's interesting about all this is this, that the book of Revelation unveils for us these last days, telling us what's going to happen and how it's all going to turn out. But it's not just a book about prophecy, as you saw last week. It's a book where God speaks to His children who He knew would be going through hard times through deep waters of suffering. And he does so because he wants them to remain faithful to their Lord and Savior, even in a time when there's going to be a great falling away. We saw that last week as we examined verses 4 through 6, a message I entitled, Why, Even Though Suffering, You Must Burst Forth in Praise to God. You know, this past week I've been going through a number of portions of the Bible, but during my devotional time I've been going through the book of Judges, and I came to that place where the angel of the Lord came to Gideon as he was there trying to thresh out a little bit of wheat so that he and his family could eat something because the Midianites had just at that point of harvest would come in and just devastate everything, take everything they could and so forth. But the angel of the Lord came to him, this is all hail the mighty man of valor, valor. Go this in your strength and deliver Israel from Midian. And the guy was scared to death. You can understand that. He was scared, first of all, because this was the angel of the Lord there. And secondly, he's scared to death because of the assignment. You mean, little old me? I'm going to go to the Midianites that cover the land like the uh, sand on the seashore and deliver them? I mean, he was really scared. And then I read there in that account, the Bible says, So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And for some reason, I was prodded in my thinking to go back to Revelation, which I talked about last week, you know. Though uh, suffering, uh, you must still praise the Lord. And uh, in verse 4, it says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And that speaks of God the Father. 
his eternity. And then from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And that was the part I was led back to as I was thinking about the, so the spirit of the Lord or the uh, spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And I thought, you know, that's not mighty angel. There are seven mighty angels because grace and peace do not come from angels. It comes from God. So you have the Trinity mentioned in verses four and five. But what interests me is that this spirit is before his throne. And, uh, you know why he's before his throne? Because he's ready to do, do the bidding of God the Father, if we can divide the Trinity in that way. He's there ready to do whatever. And here he was sent to Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And of course, you know, he won that great victory with just 300 soldiers. And I thought about that because the Spirit of the Lord is standing before the throne of God. He is also obviously God. He's there because He's going to do exactly the same thing during the seven years of tribulation. He's going to leave that, if I may use that term, uh, the throne there, and come to the earth, if I can use that term, and come mightily upon uh, those people that will do great exploits. For example, by way of illustration, Zechariah 12, 8, uh, is talking about those uh, who will be in that great tribulation who are going to do similar miraculous exploits. Let me read Zechariah 12.8. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. He goes on, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. See, that's the same thing. The Holy Spirit who is before the throne there in heaven will so empower those Jewish people that they will do incredible exploits. One will chase a thousand, so to speak. Well, also in last week's message, I shared my last major point, which was John erupted into praise to God. I've got to go back there and address that because I gave you three sub-points very quickly. Number one, John became overwhelmed by this revelation of the Trinity. That was seen in verses 4 and 5. Number two, he became overwhelmed by this revelation of God's grace. I mean, the fact that he cleansed us and, and, uh, and released us from our sins through his blood. And then he made us a kingdom of, a kingdom and priests. He became overwhelmed by that, uh, 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 that grace of God. And number three, he became overwhelmed by this revelation of Jesus' glory. As he's called the firstborn. And he's also called, um, the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, he's called the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And with that, he just burst forth into praise to God. But I forgot to show you in the scriptures where that was, at, where it took place. And that's at the end of verse uh, 6, where he says, To him be the glory and dominion, the glory and the dominion, forever and ever. I mean, he must have been caught up with that uh, uh, scripture in Daniel that talked about the Son of Man coming uh, before the Ancient of Days and receiving the glory and dominion. And so he just got caught up with it. And that ascription of praise leads us right into this morning's message. Having presented his introduction and greeting, God immediately... I want you to notice this. He immediately grabs your and my attention by uh, focusing our attention on the great theme of this letter to us. Everything is moving purposefully and deliberately to the most momentous event ever to hit planet Earth since its inception. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. Revelation 1, 7 and eight. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. As you might have noticed in your outline, there's going to, we're going to be spending a couple of messages on those two verses. I can only introduce them to you this morning. And we begin in your outline with this point. Why Jesus must come back again. 
We're not talking here of a spiritual coming back. We're talking about a literal coming back. Why Jesus must come back again. It's interesting how you're affected by preachers and by the Word. About 35 years ago, after I had graduated from seminary, Mary and I were pastoring a church down in Pleasant Hill by Eugene, Oregon. And uh, in Lebanon, which was not very far away, uh, they were having a prophetic Bible conference. And so we attended at least one of those evenings at that Bible conference, and the speaker happened to be Dr. Charles Feinberg. Dr. Charles Feinberg was studying to be a rabbi when uh, God got a hold of him and he got wonderfully saved. He went to Dallas Theological Seminary and Dr. Walbert at that time was the president and Dr. Walbert said he was the only one that ever came through the seminary that probably knew more before he came than when he left. I mean, the guy is amazing. He spoke 17 different languages. One day, uh, somebody went into his office and said, what are you doing? He said, I was learning a particular language. He said, there's a book of theology. I want to read it. And so I'm learning the language so I can read the book to see what it has to say. Amazing guy. John MacArthur had Dr. Charles Feinberg for his mentor. In fact, I believe Dr. Uh, MacArthur had his funeral as well when Dr. Feinberg was called to heaven. Well, he was a speaker. And I never forgot the impact and the emphasis of what he shared that evening, and a lot of what I'm going to be sharing will come from him on this first point. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Why Jesus must come back again. There was a major conference that was held, and uh, that was the World Council of Churches was really the one that headed it up. So that tells you a lot right there. But churches from around the world came. It was held in Evanston, Illinois, and uh, they pulled the pastors there trying to find out how many believed it was of any significance at all that the Bible, they believed, taught that Jesus was going to come back again. They especially were polling Protestant pastors here in America. They found out that only 10% felt it was relevant teaching at all. Just 10%. The rest figured didn't matter, probably wasn't going to happen anyway. Well, it does matter. I want to talk about that main point this morning, why Jesus must come back again. You see there in the text, behold, grabbing your attention right away, he is coming with the clouds. Now, obviously, it's many other places in Scripture. And so, we need to see that. Number one in your outline, I'd encourage you at least to fill out the outline because you can track this down later on or maybe later on you'll say, well, wait a minute. Do I really believe he's going to come back or not? And if so, why? Why would I believe that? Well, maybe this will be helpful. Number one, God's promise in Scripture demands that Jesus returns again. God's promise in Scripture demands his return. The very first promise from God that Messiah shall rule is found in Genesis 49.10. I underscore that, that he will rule. He said in Genesis 49.10, Jacob giving his blessing on his twelve children, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Well, if that's not enough, you can always turn to Psalm 2. That's a messianic psalm. You've just begin the book of Psalms and you hit Psalm 2. We read God's promise to his son. He said, I will surely tell of the decree. That's a decree, something fixed by God himself of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is not a rain from heaven. This is rain right here upon the earth. So God's promise in Scripture demands that Jesus return again. Number two, Jesus' own words make his return necessary. And by the way, there's a lot of scripture here. I'm just giving some some major points or major support. Jesus' own words make his return necessary. You're familiar with John chapter 14, of course. 
Jesus promised his disciples that he was going away to prepare for them a place in his father's house, but he would come again and receive them to himself. He often used parables. Remember the one about the uh, one who, the Lord who gave out the, the, the different, different meanings to the different ones, and then he went on a journey to get a kingdom and then was going to come back? And so that's Luke 19. He's going to receive a kingdom, and they were to do business for him until he returned. And in that parable, there were those who did not want to reign, him to reign over them. So we're not going to have this man to reign over us. And when he got back, having received the kingdom, he demanded, commanded them to be brought before him, and he slaughtered them right there in that parable. As I said, there's many, many other scriptures. I'm just giving some here. Number three, the Holy Spirit's witness demands Jesus' return. Why? Is he not called the Spirit of truth? Yes, And he is the author of the scriptures. Every word in the original manuscripts, he superintended every part of that. Repeatedly, he states in those writings that Jesus must literally return to this earth and reign. You've got it right there in Revelation. We just read it in verse 7. You get to chapter 9, it's there. 19 again, it's there. Therefore, Jesus must come back again. Number 4. Jesus' program for his church demands his return. His program for his church demands his return. Right now, he is calling out a bride. We're called the church. We're also called a building. We're also called uh, sheep. We're also called uh, stones. And we're called a bride here. And right now he's calling out a bride for himself from among both the Jews and the Gentiles. And you're part of that bride if you're here this morning and you're saved. So you're, 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 you're part of the church. And when his bride is complete with the last person coming to saving faith that makes up his bride, he will come and take her home to his father's house. But shortly thereafter, the marriage feast will take place here upon the earth when he returns with his bride and enters into his kingdom reign. And that great event is recorded for us in Revelation 19. And so his program, and again, there's so much more, but I'm just hitting the highlights there. Jesus' program for his church demands his return. Number five, Jesus' personal judgment of the nations requires his return. I've already mentioned Psalm 2. But listen to Joel 3 and all the minor prophets and major prophets in the Old Testament talk about this return. It's coming to judge the nations. Joel 3, 1 and 2 say, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah, oh, he's going to restore the fortunes of Jerusalem and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations. And bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them. And listen to this. I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel. Don't stop there. Whom they have scattered. Don't stop there. They've scattered among the nations. And listen to this. And they have divided up my land. Going on right now, isn't it? Going on right now. They want, to, <laughs> they want to drive Israel into sea and divide up her land right now. And let's make some negotiations for peace over there. Okay, Israel, here's a negotiation. You give up a little bit more. Let the Palestinians take a little bit more and we'll give you peace. Okay, we'll do that. All right, so they do. You know that in the history since 1948. Well, wait a minute. That didn't work out. You need to give up a little bit more. And then there will be peace. Boy, look at that. That was written thousands of years ago. He said, I will bring those nations down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and I will enter into judgment on those nations for scattering my people and for dividing up. And what did he say? Dividing up my land. Amazing. 
Again, in Revelation 19, this event is described for us as the Lord Jesus Christ literally comes to the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords, and He slaughters those nations of the world there in the Valley of Jezreel who are being led by Antichrist. Number six, Jesus' program for Israel necessitates His return. I realize there's a little bit of overlapping here. But Jesus' program for Israel necessitates His return. God has made an unconditional promise. An unconditional covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in that covenant, He promised them a kingdom, that is land. And He promised them that Messiah would come and reign over them in that kingdom. Messiah did come, as you know, but He didn't reign over them, and they didn't get any kingdom. But listen to Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. You may want to write that down in your notes. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. That's certainly not happened. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, you can trace that Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus' program for Israel necessitates his return. Number seven. By the way, before I get to number seven, go back to that first point there, that point number six. Jesus' program for Israel necessitates his return. We went through the book of Zechariah on Sunday night. I wish you who were not here could have been here for that. I mean, you get chapter 12, 13, and 14, there's no doubt. Uh, we're in a major uh, Armageddon battle there and going on over there in Israel. And uh, here the Jews are, are being attacked. Israel's, Jer- Jerusalem's being attacked. And then the Lord comes and he fights in their behalf. And we read that a little bit earlier, Zechariah 12, I believe it was, about uh, them, one uh, that's feeble, being like David and so forth. And you get into chapter 14, then the Mount of Olives is split, literally split, as the Lord Jesus Christ comes there to the Mount of Olives. And then you have that nuclear holocaust that described in chapter 14. And and then him setting up his kingdom. I mean, it's all there in Zechariah, very clearly spelled out. But number seven, the expectation of the saints requires Jesus to return. My heart and expectation, your heart and expectation, and around the world, our hope demands our Lord Jesus Christ return. Listen to Titus 2, 11 through 13. You may want to write that in your notes as well. Titus 2, 11 through 13, it says, For the grace of a God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Now listen to this. Looking for the blessed hope, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Second Timothy 4, 8, to add to that, Paul writes these words, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved, what is it? His appearing. All those who have loved His appearing. Turn with me to 1 Peter 1. I know that uh, if you've been in Sunday school, you've been looking at 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter 1. And Howard, you uh, have already covered this part of the Scripture. But I want to refer to it this morning. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 13. First Peter 1, 10 through 13. Remember, these people in uh, the book of 1 Peter, they're suffering under the Neronian persecution. Later on, there'll be the Domitian persecution. They are suffering. They're being blamed for everything wrong going on in the Roman world at that time. They're being taken to the Colosseums. They are being crucified, and on and on it goes. But look at verse 10. He says, as to this salvation, he just described it, this hope they have, 
As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come, that's the Old Testament prophets, to you, made careful searches and inquiry, seeking to know, now notice it, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ, don't stop there, and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And now look at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He has to come back again because of the expectation of the saints. Over and over, he told us he would come and our hearts fixed on that. 1 John 3, 1-3 emphasizes that. Everybody who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure, that we will see him as he is when he comes. Number eight, the judgment of all unbelievers demands Jesus' return. I don't know about you, but there's some things that need to be set straight. The Lord told me not to worry about it. Even in Psalm 37, fret not yourself because of evildoers. But even in 1 Peter, he entrusted himself, he kept entrusting himself to one who judges righteously. Things have to be set straight, and especially when it comes to God and the unbeliever, the unsaved person that is either rejected or chose to neglect the offer of salvation in his son. Listen to John 5. You can write these verses down again, 22 and 27 through 29. John 5, 22 and 27 through 29. Jesus says, for not even the Father judges anyone. But I have given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. You get that? What you do with Jesus Christ has everything to do with your relationship with God the Father. You don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. And he goes on, verses 27 through 29, And he, the Father, gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, he says, for an hour is coming. We're close to that hour. In which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now somebody can say, oh, it's based on works then, good deeds. No, you missed the point there. He later on, tell, by the way, all through John's gospel, he tells you what? You have to be born again. You have to be saved. All through that gospel. In fact, he said that was the very purpose he wrote that. The point being that if you're saved, then you can do good deeds that please God. If you're unsaved, you can't do anything that will gain any merit with Him whatsoever. All that merit is found and provided in His Son, not in anything that we do. In Acts 17, 30 and 31, Acts 17, 30 and 31, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, Paul writes, God is now declaring to men that all peoples everywhere should repent. Well, why so, Paul? Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And believe me, I believe we are very close to that hour. Look with me, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians 1 and following. 2 Thessalonians. The judgment of all unbelievers demands Jesus' return. 
verses 6 through 10. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. For after all, Paul says, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, not annihilation, eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Pretty clear, isn't it? Look with me at Revelation 20 that goes into even a greater detail of the description there. Revelation 20. By this time the Lord has come back. He has reigned for a thousand years according to chapter 20. And now we come to the end of that what we call the millennial reign. And in chapter 20, we're giving this information about him being the judge. We've already established he is a judge based on John 5 and uh, even Second Thessalonians 1. But look at Revelation 20, 11 through 15. John writes in, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Evidently, there's degrees of punishment in this lake of fire. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. It's not annihilation. Chapter, I mean, verse 10 will emphasize and clarify that for you. The beast or antichrist and false prophet and the devil are there, and they're tormented day and night forever and ever. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, here's the issue. What did they do with Jesus Christ? Not how good were they. Not what incredible deeds did they do to benefit mankind. No, it's an issue. What did they do with Jesus Christ, God's only provision for mankind? If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown, cast into the lake of fire. It gives a little bit more description there. Jesus Christ must come back again. The judgment of all unbelievers demands Jesus' return. Number nine. Jesus must return to deal once for all with Satan. Amen? My. That wicked arch enemy of God. That evil, destructive enemy of of you and me, he must come back and deal with him once and for all. Satan attacked God there in heaven. God is sovereign. He knew it, allowed it. And then he attacked man in the Garden of Eden when God gave him dominion to oversee the earth itself. And he usurped that position by getting Adam and Eve to fall. And now he is a prince of the power, the God of the world, and so forth. And uh, God says... My son must come back to deal with him once and for all. In 1 John 3, 8, 1 John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose. That's his first coming. Why did he appear? To destroy the works of the devil. But not just his works. Romans 16, 20. By the way, we'll, as you move through, and you'll find out that all these points are developed to some degree in the book of Revelation. Romans 16, 20, I love it. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Going to crush Satan under your feet. Revelation 20. Maybe you're there. Revelation 20. 
Let me read verses 1 through 3 so you see the events. My intent is not to go through all the book of Revelation, so whether I do or not, I don't know, but at least we see a little bit of overview this way. Revelation 20, 1 through 3, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. This is after the Lord comes back to the earth, by the way, and the battle of Armageddon has taken place, and the beasts or the Antichrist, the false prophet, are taken and cast alive into the lake of fire. Then he's going to set up his kingdom, but here's how it begins. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, so there's no doubt about who it is here, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. God still has some plans for Satan. I think it's interesting. The Lord's going to be back here. He's going to be the one sovereignly ruling over the whole world, and you and I are going to be involved in that reign according to Scripture, and Romans, and even Revelation. And uh, Satan and all of the minion of demons are going to be taken, and they're going to be bound, and so he won't be able to bother anybody. It'll be a perfect environment with the Lord himself here. And yet people who come into that through the tribulation, uh, they're going to marry and be have children and so forth, and uh, they're going to live long age, ages as well, long lives. And lots and lots of children are going to be born. It's amazing what they're going to say. We do not want this man reigning over us. Isn't that something? Perfect environment. What the government's always trying to do, making a mess of. And uh, here you have it. And they say, look, we we don't like this. Why? Because they have got that sin nature. And the sin nature says, I don't want God. I want the things He offers, but I want Him to leave me alone. That's that rebellion and anarchy that is constant between the sin nature of man, fallen man, and God who is holy and righteous. Well, what happens is, you see, it's hard to believe. After his millennial thousand-year reign, Satan is released. And let's look at that now. And that takes us to verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are completed... Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Can you imagine that? And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I'll tell you what, you ought to put a hearty amen to the end of that verse. What a glorious event and time that will be when finally... This wicked enemy, and I mean, you can't even, I mean, I hope you can lay hold. The suffering you're going through, the difficulties, the frustrations, the things you deal with in your life and every life around you, and the world deals with, why? Because of that being right there. Of course, he found good soil when we agreed to yield to him, did he not? But God says, I have something to deal with, and my son will deal with him. The first Adam lost it. The second Adam reclaims it. And he does it royally and thoroughly, if I might say that. Number 10. To me, this really is the greatest reason of all, but they're all there important. Number 10. Jesus' great humiliation demands his return. Oh, my. Jesus' great humiliation. Humiliation demands his return. He humbled himself and left heaven and came into this world. And they what? Rejected him. This is God's most beloved son. This is how God will allow the story to end. What great all-powerful king does this when his subjects so abuse and destroy his only beloved son? During his trial we're told Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, 
You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He understood that was a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. And you saw it there in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and so forth. At that point, of course, what did they do? They spat upon him. They mocked him. They blindfolded him and they beat him. Said, mocking, prophesy. If you're a prophet, tell us who it was that slapped you, beat you, hit you in the face. They delivered him over to Pilate, who scourged him and mocked him as well. And then he had him taken to Herod, who mocked him. And finally, he was taken out with two criminals. And he was crucified there in the midst of those two criminals. While all those leaders of of, uh, Israel walked by, wagging their their tongues at him, mocking, Oh, if you're the Son of God, come down and we'll believe you, and so forth. That's how the world last saw God's beloved Son. Believe me, God, believe God when He declares to you the world has not seen the last of His Son. The day has already been fixed, as you saw, when He will send His Son back to this earth to settle the score. We need to know and remember well those words. For this reason also God highly exalted Him. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every, listen, every single knee will bow of those in the heavens and those on the earth and those under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? Why? To the glory of the Father. Amen? What a foolish world of unbelieving people who do not know or care to know God's Word and His nature, His character, and that He always does what He said. Revelation 1, 7 and 8, He gets the heart and attention of His people who are suffering. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be, so be it. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I've just given you ten reasons. I imagine there are more. Why Jesus Christ must come again. We go now to the next part. Distinguishing between the end time events and the coming of Jesus. I wasn't sure quite how to label this, so that's how I did it. Distinguishing between the end time events and the coming of Jesus. You have two major points I want to develop under that very quickly. Number one, Christ is coming in the air for his church. Christ is coming in the air for his church. Let me give you the last point, too, so you can think about the distinguishing differences there. And that is... Christ is coming to the earth to establish his kingdom. They're all caught up in that event of his second coming, but uh, Christ is coming to the earth to establish his kingdom. So I want to begin with this. Christ is coming in the air for his church. First, there are a lot of different views on this, okay? You're supposed to laugh about that. There are a lot. Even in this church, I imagine there are a lot of different views. Do I dare even venture to enter into this territory? Well, I'm required to do that even if I'm wrong, and then you can straighten me out later on. But I want to say this so everybody understands here. You do not have to believe like I do on this issue to be in fellowship here and attend this church, okay? Don't leave over this now. You absolutely, that has, this is, has nothing to do with fellowshipping, loving each other, growing in Christ, using our spiritual gifts here. 
Uh, there are people that think that, uh, like I do, and I'll share my view in a minute, that the Lord will do it now. That the Lord's going to come back in the air and take all the believers out of here before the tribulation begins. Others say, no, no, I think we're going to go through at least part of the tribulation, or maybe to the middle point, or at least to the trumpets. And then that, then you, some of you say, I have no idea what you're talking about. And other, don't worry, if you're saved, you'll be taken up when he comes, or else you'll die and you'll still be taken up. Okay, and then there are those that say, no, I think it's at the very end. In fact, there's only one coming of the Lord. So, there you go. So, we got we got, got one here anyway. Okay. <laughs> I love it, Roy. I love it. So, so there, there are different views on this. Well, all I can do is say it has nothing to do with our fellowship here. Don't you love that? I love Roy. One of us are going to tell each the other, you're wrong and you're right, but we, we'll wait to find out who that's going to be. And others have other views, and I love them as well, just so you know that. So this is not an issue of, can we come to this church, can we fill it? It isn't even a member of whether you can be a, uh, I mean, an issue of whether you can be a member here. That either. So, okay. So, and by the way, if you turn on the television or you go to a bookstore, a Christian bookstore, and look for books on this subject, you'll find out there are a whole lot of views. So... Got that behind us. Okay. We have unity here. And this morning, Mary and I were thanking and praising God for each one of you. And we were thanking Him for the unity we have here in this body of Christ. I And Roy, you were saying earlier this morning how much that meant to you as well. And it does. I just treasure the unity we have here. Now, there's other things, though, Lord, that, that, that we're concerned that you do believe. We believe that you get saved by faith alone in Christ alone. We don't negotiate that one. We believe that in the original manuscripts, we don't have any original manuscripts, but in the original manuscripts, every single word and the word order were chosen by God, the Holy Spirit. And we also believe that the Holy Spirit preserved copies so that we're safe when it comes to faith and practice when it comes to the Bible. That doesn't mean you can't pick up a Bible that's crummy. I mean, really, I mean, there's some of those that that, uh, just... Uh, they have taken liberties that, uh, that uh, if you are a student of the Word, you're not comfortable with at all. So you have to be wise in that issue there. Well, having said that, I want to explain to you Christ's church. I said Christ is coming in the air for His church. What do we mean by church? You mean the Baptist church? All the Baptists are going to go because the dead in Christ rise first? Somebody get it? No. Do we mean denominations? No. Do we mean... All the denominations. No, it doesn't even mean that. Doesn't mean the Roman Catholic Church. No, doesn't mean that. The word is ecclesia in the Greek. It means the called out ones. That's what the word translates church. That's a literal translation, ecclesia. Called out ones. During the Old Testament time period, and during the time Jesus was here on the earth, God was dealing with national Israel. He was dealing with national Israel. Jesus was their promised Messiah. They were hoping and longing that the Messiah would come and deliver them from Rome and give them their kingdom. As you know, they rejected Jesus as their Messiah and had Him crucified. At that point, now listen to me carefully, at that point, God's program for Israel was put on hold. It's put on hold. It was not ended. It was only postponed. That's what I teach. Probably most of you already know that. God then introduced a new program. He had mentioned, the Lord had mentioned it to his disciples there in John, I'm sorry, Matthew 18 and so forth. But uh, as far as the full development of that program, he really left it to the Apostle Paul to unveil, for example, we're the bride of Christ and things about the church. It began on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. He ascended back up into heaven, and something incredible happened on that day. The Holy Spirit came. We talked about being before the throne and doing the will of God. He came, and this time He indwelt permanently every believer. Permanently. That is the beginning, my understanding from Scripture, of the church. 
When will that be completed? We talked a little bit about it already. And I believe when the last person gets saved and God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I think that's why he is merciful and forbearing and delays the coming. But when that last person gets saved, God says, Now, the bride is complete, son. Go get your bride and bring her home. And I believe that that will be the next event on God's prophetic calendar. In fact, uh, explaining the time of the event for you, being the next major prophetic prophetic event, we're told it will occur quickly. 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's like a ray of light hits your light. I mean, it'd be so fast, so quick, you don't have time to get ready. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound the dead, and Christ will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. I believe the New Testament writers taught the imminency of Christ. I believe that they believed he could come back in their day. He could come back at any time. There was no major thing. I don't think that the tribulation had to happen. The Antichrist had to be revealed before he could come back. Now, if you believe the church goes into the tribulation, you're going to have a different view there. But I believe in the imminency of Christ. They looked and they lived in the light of the Lord and Savior's return, believing He could come in their day. And now add to that, listen, now add to that what you're seeing today, though. What are we seeing today? Scripture talks about the nation of Israel and what's going to happen to her in the days before the Lord returns to the earth. You're seeing that. I watched Truman. It's been quite a while ago. And I said to Mary after saying, I said, Mary, God allowed that man who should never have been elected as president. I mean, they didn't think he was going to get the election. He should never have been allowed. He was elected, and he did the one thing that I forget who it was. I want to say George Marshall, but I'm not sure, who did not want this to happen. And that was, he said, no, go over there and support the, the bill to make Israel a nation. I thought, that is incredible, God. You put that man in there for that one reason that they would become... The other nations were not favorable of that, if you want to check that out. And yet, he allowed that to happen. He, he designed that to happen, that they would become a nation in 1948. My. As the all the surrounding... Arab nations today are determined to drive Israel into the sea and into existence. And Iran has tried and keeps on trying to seek nuclear capabilities so as to attack Israel. You can only wonder just how close we are to the Lord's coming in the air for His church, His bride. You know, I, I think why I'm in this study is I'm thinking more about the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. I really am. And I'm trying to live more and more in light of the fact he could come today, even before the Seahawks get their game played. <laughs> Boy, wouldn't that mess up the game? Wow. Now, I believe he's coming in the air for his church. He doesn't come back to the earth. He just comes and they're gone just like that. And what will occur when this event takes place, this that's called the rapture, that's really a Latin word. It means to be caught up or caught away. I'll tell you what's going to happen. And this again makes me wonder if we're right on the edge of it. Worldwide chaos. Every believer gone. In a moment. In a flash. Gone. Can you imagine? It isn't just people that are driving things that happen to be believers or flying things that happen to be believers. I mean, you're talking about people that have responsibility. You'll get up tomorrow and go to work and you won't be there. I mean, worldwide chaos. Listen, that makes sense to me because then I can understand why one man could say, hey, look, and God infuses him. He becomes Satan's man and Satan knows this is my hour. I get to do what I want. And this man says, listen, I can make order of all this. And you know what? The world will follow him. Every country, for the most part, will follow him. Worldwide chaos. Bodies of those Christians that are in the graves will immediately ascend, having been glorified, and reunite with those. I don't think the graves are going to be open. I don't think they'll go out in the cemetery and say, good grief, somebody dumped over those tombstones, you know, look at the, what's this mess here? Maybe that's the case. I don't think it has to be. Because they will come back with the Lord and they're going to receive the glorified body, it says in First Thessalonians. And as they're taken up and caught up, then we who are alive and remain will also be snatched away. Isn't that good? That's cool. Wow. 
And what will be taking place here on the earth with those who have been left behind? My, oh my. Well, I want to explain something I've never explained before in detail. And that is this why I, okay? Don't get your guns out. Don't get your stones out. Why I preach and teach a pre-tribulational rapture position. I bet most of you never knew I teach and preach that. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. First, and this is foundation to every, everything, and anybody who really studies the Bible understands this, this is foundational to everything to me. So this is number one. First, I am what's called a dispensationalist. That's a big word, isn't it? Dispen, dispensationalist. Dispensationalist. Briefly what that means, and this is a real brief definition, that I believe God has two distinct programs. One for Israel, another one for the church. Throughout the Old Testament, God was dealing with the nation of Israel, promising them a kingdom and their Messiah who would rule over that kingdom. When Jesus, their Messiah, came, they rejected him and crucified him. And at that point, God judged them and put the fulfillment of his program with Israel on hold. He then introduced what I would call, if you please, my term, a hidden program. It wasn't revealed before. And that was the church that would become his son's bride and be composed of both Jew and Gentile. One of the reasons I distinguish between these two programs is because Daniel's 70th week prophecy concerning Israel saw the first 69 weeks literally fulfilled upon Israel, leaving the final week to be yet fulfilled upon Israel. And right now there is no distinction between Jew and and Gentile when one gets saved. But when the tribulation, listen, but when the tribulation begins, we are told that 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each one of the tribes, get saved and is sealed by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel. So I'm a dispensational. That's really foundational to everything and how you define and interpret dispensationalists. Number two, a second reason... And I know these are not in your notes, so you may want to get the the CD afterwards so you can take me on. That's fair. The second reason why I preach the rapture will take place and the church will be taken to heaven before the seven-year tribulation begins is because God's church program was revealed to Paul, who tells us that when the dead in Christ are raised, we will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. But... When the Lord returns, we're told we will be coming back with him in the clouds, in the air. As Walter Scott writes, Christ is nowhere said to come with the clouds to gather his own. On the contrary, they go up in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Third reason I believe that we will be raptured out of here before the tribulation begins is because God has told us in his word when the Lord addressed the Philippian church, or Philadelphian church, I'm sorry, Philadelphia church, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth, and that Hour, by the way, is described in Revelation 6 through 19. All those judgments that will be poured out at that time. There's more to that, these points, but I'm just giving you the, the peak of them, if you please. A fourth reason for my personal stance is that the word used for church in the Greek is that word ekklesia. It's used over and over in Revelation 2 and 3. And then in chapter 4, something happens. John is caught up and taken up into heaven. And the church is not again mentioned until you get to chapter 19. And how it's mentioned there, by the way, it's used ecclesia in chapter 22. But in chapter 19, uh, she's described as a bride with the marriage already having taken place. Do you understand that? She's described as a bride with the marriage already having having taken place. Here is what it says. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. I believe this is when the judgment seat of Christ will take place. Is during that seven years of tribulation. We're going to be up there and that's where he's going to be rewarding us for our faithfulness. 
It was given to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. These are not angels. We're then told that the Lord returns to the earth, and following Him are those who are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, which I believe is the church of the bride, as it was earlier described to be as such. By the way, well, we'll go on to number five. Number fifth reason why I preach and teach a pre-tribulational rapture position is because of the outline of the book of Revelation. The outline of this book we're looking at. Revelation 1 through 19 says, Therefore write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. This has its outline included in the book itself. The things which you have seen is verses 1 through 18, where the Lord reveals himself in his glorified form to John. The things which are, that's present tense, is Revelation 2 and 3. And, uh, Our Lord's message to each of the seven churches, which speaks of this present church age going on right now. By the way, when we get there, I'll explain this more in detail, but I don't think it is talking about a uh, from Pentecost, the first church, Ephesus was like this, and the next church was like this, and you get to the Laodicean church. There might be something about that, but it's hard to get all that to fit in, even historically. But I believe those seven churches represent churches that could exist anywhere at any time. You've got the suffering church, you've got the Laodicean church that thinks it's okay and great and so forth, and uh, I think they all, you have the Bible teaching, preaching churches like Ephesus, I think they could all exist at different places uh, at any period of time during the church age. As I said earlier, beginning with chapter 4 though, John changes locations from earth to heaven. I think the church age is over and God comes and takes the believers out here based on that outline. And then the final part of the the outline, the things which will take place after these things. That's chapters 4 through 22. John's up in heaven before the throne with thousands upon thousands of people that are there from every tongue, people, tribe, nation, and so forth. And then what happens? You move to chapter 6, immediately the judgments, the Lord begins to break those seals and the judgments fall upon this earth during that next seven years. Which will be consummated, of course, with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ with His bride to the earth when He will judge the nations and set up His thousand-year reign followed by the last judgment of all the unsaved throughout time. And then we have the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, as well as the new Jerusalem, and that ushers in the eternal life. Now, if you find yourself saved now, but in the tribulation, okay, what then? Well, (laughs) change positions, that's right. (laughs) You change your position. I know what Roy is going to do. He's going to track me down if I'm still alive and say, guess what? Why was this book written? It was written to encourage and to strengthen believers who are being persecuted and executed, if I might, for their faith. And I'll tell you what. A lot of us want to avoid the tribulation. You've got brothers and sisters that are in the tribulation right now. Not the seven-year tribulation, but they are, I tell you, I said in my prayer, they would long to come to this service where they could be free and could just open themselves and express some praise to God and they could open the scriptures like this and study. They wouldn't go home at 12, I'll tell you. They would keep you here probably all day, all night. They would long for that privilege, but they know that they have to do it in secret. As we said last week, some of them, they are infringed upon by evil people that come in and just devastate them. They slaughter them. So be ready. Be faithful. Take that from this book, no matter what your stance is about when the Lord's going to come back. Because he said there will be a falling away. And as a pastor, I'll tell you, it burdens my heart. I'm seeing that. I'm seeing people that are so ill-prepared for what's about to take place and what is taking place. My. That brings us quickly to that last part, Christ coming to the earth to establish his kingdom. Now, we've been looking at his coming in the air, that's what I teach, for his bride. 
And then I believe will be the seven years of tribulation here. And I want you to notice that that he comes at this time, though, at the end of the seven years, to establish his kingdom. He comes to fulfill all those reasons why I said he must literally come back. And I think we're right on the edge of that. And then the events leading up to his coming, well... We're not going to get into that this morning because that would take us into Revelation 6 through 19. All I want to say, if you think things are bad now, if indeed I am correct, and God takes every believer out of here in a moment, not only are you going to have worldwide chaos, you're going to have a darkness like is unimaginable. He said it will be like a time that has never before. In fact, he said it will be so bad if he wouldn't shorten the days None of us, none of us would exist. When Satan finally is allowed to do what he wanted to do back there on the Tower of Babel, a one world government. I think I mentioned this before when I was over visiting Jerry and Vicki. Mary and I were over there in Virginia. He and I are watching a history channel and talked about all these modern day weaponry they have today and even our own country. And I said to Jerry, isn't that something the day's going to be when all that weaponry and the incredible high tech stuff will be in the hands of Antichrist and he's going to be using it to track down believers because people are going to get saved in the tribulation and to track down the people of Israel. Tomorrow's news. And there'll be no one to stop him. It'll be a horrific time. Why I say all that? Because he said, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Whether I go into the tribulation or not, Roy, I am ready. Because I belong to the Lord. I put my faith in Him. And I want to tell you something. You're dealing with God now. We're all dealing with God. It's what how He has revealed Himself, what He has to say. And He said, I gave my Son that you could be saved and be mine. And believe me, he's very acutely aware of what people do with his son. Behold, there's salvation and no other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Two verses we didn't even get into. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. But we've talked about why you must come, Lord Jesus Christ. And we've talked about why I believe you're going to come before the tribulation begins. Even if I am wrong, you are going to come. It is so important, Father, that we get this message out to people, that they put their faith in you, Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no other possible way for them to escape the judgment to come. And the fiery, eternal wrath of God upon sinful, rebellious man, except in your Son. I thank you like John. I know that everybody that belongs to you says, they thank you like John for these promises. And they cry of their heart as even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.